Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. As authorities try to secure state capitals and President-elect Biden's inauguration, they're also responding to racism and extremism within their ranks. Several Capitol Police officers have been suspended. At least a dozen are under investigation for complicity in last week's deadly siege at the U.S. Capitol. Some officers' actions, including one who posed for a selfie with insurrectionists, are exposing anew the force's troubled history of discrimination against black officers. They've lodged hundreds of civil rights lawsuits in the last two decades. Racism in military and law enforcement ranks and its role in the insurrection. That's next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Governor Gavin Newsom is mobilizing a thousand members of the California National Guard to protect the state capitol ahead of next week's inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. The CHP is also denying permits for rallies at the capitol this weekend after the FBI warned that state buildings could be targets. Joining me now is Missy Ryan, who covers national security, military issues, and the Pentagon for The Washington Post. Missy Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And just uh, building off that introduction, do you know if California or other state officials have received any specific intelligence from federal authorities about planned violence? Uh, intelligence beyond the FBI's warning early this week about groups calling more generally for, for storming state capitals? Yeah, well, there have been a number of warnings issued in recent days by federal authorities, including DHS and the FBI. And what they're saying is basically that many of the the uh, rioters that we saw last week and people who are in the same kind of online fora were emboldened by the events of January 6th and that uh, there's lots of online chatter about uh, potential further action. But basically uh, they have said that there aren't specific threats against state capitals at this point. And obviously that could change, but you're still seeing a lot of state authorities taking precautionary measures, activating uh, National Guard, some of them putting them in place in their, their state capitals in the event that they, they actually haven't been able to uh, identify specific threats that are going on uh, in some of these online forums, especially because Parler, for example, is shut down and um, there's fear that some of the, the, the planning that could have been detected before is now inaccessible to law enforcement. And hmm. the security situation at the U.S. Capitol right now, I mean, as you and others have noted, we're set to have more troops at the U.S. Capitol for Biden's inauguration than in Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq combined. I mean, the atmosphere there must feel incredibly tense. 
It, it really does. And it, it's sort of a surreal experience, especially for, for someone like myself who spent who has spent a lot of time uh, reporting from Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. Uh, it's surreal to see the, the nation's capital in this kind of lockdown. Uh, I driving around downtown DC the other night, it's very difficult to, to get around because of these huge swaths of the city that are shut off to traffic, uh, guarded by steel barriers, concrete crash barriers. There's National Guard trucks in certain areas of the city. And so it does, it does feel like a, a city that is under siege a little bit, you know, I mean, very a, a limited part of the central portion, the federal portion of the city. But it does, you know, I think that there is a sort of chilling psychological effect that a lot of the residents feel when uh, much of their city becomes inaccessible. And of course, there's the fear of, of the unknown in terms of what could happen in coming days and uh, a repeat of the events of, of the of the kind of events that occurred on January 6th. Yes, there's been reporting this morning that the insurrectionists came dangerously close to getting to Vice President Pence. And uh, as you've been reporting, I mean, the Pentagon has been under intense scrutiny about why the National Guard wasn't sent in quickly and, uh, you know, the different claims that are going back and forth between D.C. police, local police, and and what happened at the Department of Defense. I understand that the Department of Defense Inspector General has announced this morning that will, it will investigate the response. I mean, how significant is this development? Yeah, and it's not just the Defense Department, uh, the Justice Department, the Department of Homeland Security, the Interior Department, and the Capitol Police have all launched uh, uh, reviews of what occurred in the lead up to January 6th in terms of intelligence and security planning, and then what occurred on January 6th. And for the Pentagon, uh, that, that component will be especially important because of the allegations that have been made by city and Capitol Police authorities saying that the Defense Department moved too slowly and even initially denied an urgent request where Capitol Police basically was was pleading for National Guard assistance. And, you know, it's it's a complicated situation because the D.C. National Guard is in a special um, situation because Washington is not a state. The D.C. Guard is commanded by senior Pentagon officials, the secretary of the army, usually um, uh, with some sign off from the defense secretary. And so, you know, there's this whole bureaucratic procedure in terms of calling up part-time soldiers, but there is there, there is a lot of sort of bureaucratic recrimination that's going on right now. And I think we'll see a lot of this shake out in these uh, inspector general investigations as they are undertaken in, in the coming weeks. And based on your experience covering these kinds of things, I mean, do you think it will bring officials to count? How, how is the IG's office <laughs> in terms of how it goes after these kinds of questions? Yeah, I don't expect uh, much in the way of disciplinary action at the Pentagon. Based mm -hmm. on my experience, I think um, there could be some very helpful lessons learned and perhaps improvements made to the way um, requests are relayed and approved potentially to make it more nimble um, in the future. But, you know, that's going to be balanced. So I do expect some of that, but that is also going to be balanced um, uh, sort of to be realistic uh, uh, against the, there's a strong desire from the military leadership 
to stay out of these highly charged political situations surrounding the election. And I don't think that's going to change just because we don't expect this highly charged political situation to go away um, now that President-elect Biden is taking over. So, you know, you're going to see um, hopefully some improvements in how security is planned, authorized and um, executed in the future. But um, the military, for its part, um, is going to want to stay on the margins of this. Well, the other review I want to ask you about is the Pentagon's Inspector General's office saying that it's launching a review into whether the Defense Department has put in place measures that prohibit active advocacy and participation in white supremacist and other extremist groups. I mean, of course, we're learning that there was a Virginia National Guardsman uh, that was at the riot facing charges and connection to the riot. I mean, what is the Department of Defense doing to address extremism in the ranks? And is this an issue that has been taken seriously before now, if it's being taken seriously now as well? Yeah, you know, it's it is certainly a phenomenon that they acknowledge exists and is um, on the rise. But they will also acknowledge it's hard to get a handle on in terms of understanding the factors um, and um, the scope of it. But what what the acting defense secretary, Christopher Miller had authorized before the January 6th riot was a review of how they address extremism. And that was basically related to this sort of reckoning on you know, race, discrimination, and then on the other side of that, you know, sort of the white supremacy that has existed in the military, um, that that there was a reckoning that occurred after the the race-related riot, uh, protests, excuse me, um, a, uh, last June. And so there's been a process to review the, the problems within the military related to race. And as part of that, they had ordered this review. You know, the military does do a number of things to try to screen for extremism that, you know, when recruits come into um, a recruiting office, there's a process that includes examining tattoos, there are background checks, everybody has to get a secret security clearance. They coordinate with the FBI to um, uh, track any investigations into current and former members of the military for extremism or, you know, membership in a militia or whatever. But they also acknowledge that there's a certain draw that a lot of these groups, the the white nationalist groups and the the militia groups have with the military, and they actively recruit from people who are veterans or or maybe even in the military. Um, There's a draw because those groups want to have people with these skills um, and that, you know, they they acknowledge that they have a long way to go in dealing with this problem. Missy Ryan, a reporter covering the Pentagon, military issues and national security at the Washington Post. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate your reporting. Thank you. Joining us now is Joaquin Sapien, a reporter for ProPublica. His recent story is no one took us seriously. Black cops warned about racist Capitol Police officers for years. Joaquin Sapien, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You know, this insurrection, of course, at the Capitol put a spotlight on the Capitol Police Force, and several members are being investigated for possible complicity with the mob. That included white supremacists, neo-Nazis, as we saw and are learning more about. Can you just quickly remind us what are some of the some of the things that they are investigating, some of the actions uh, among police officers on the Capitol Police Force that have drawn their attention and drawn charges? 
Well, as the whole world saw, there were images of uh, members of the Capitol Police Department, you know, taking taking selfies uh, with some of the insurrectionists. There was also some footage of an officer who was wearing a, a red Make America Great Again hat as he you know, directed protesters around capitol building allegedly um and you know of course there was a lot, there was quite a bit of footage of officers quite valiantly fighting off rioters as well but there are around 12 at least um who are under investigation for for possibly assisting them and what your reporting makes clear is that i mean racism has has long been a problem at the capitol police force but it really helps us understand the extent. I mean, it sounds like there were hundreds of lawsuits and complaints about about racism in the ranks. Right. So between from from 2001 to the present, there's been more than uh, 250 black Capitol police officers involved in lawsuits alleging racial discrimination. And uh, we heard from a handful of them and, and went through some of those legal filings and found that a number had accused white officers of, you know, using uh, racial slurs like the N-word against them. One officer said that he found a, a hangman's noose on his locker. Uh, the white officers who showed some, you know, sympathy or, or were friendly with their black officer, uh, black colleagues also um, suffered some retaliation. You know, they were being called friends of gangsters. Black officers also said that they had faced unprovoked traffic stops by their by their white colleagues. Another black officer claimed he heard, um, you know, some Obama monkey go back to Africa. And so, you know, the legal filings are, are rife with these kinds of complaints and they stretch back more than two decades. We're talking about the Capitol Police's troubled history of racial discrimination with Joaquin Sapien. And after the break, we'll talk about how it contributed to the force's response to last week's insurrection. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As authorities try to secure state capitals and President-elect Biden's inauguration, they're also responding to racism and extremism within their ranks. And joining me now is Joaquin Sapien, a reporter for ProPublica. His recent story is, no one took us seriously. Black cops warned about racist Capitol Police officers for years. And just before the break, Joaquin Sapien, you were describing some of the horrific incidents. And I'm wondering if you could now tell us how uh, the department responded to allegations and complaints. Well, these lawsuits have been tied up in the courts for a really long time. Uh, the the allegations in them are still unresolved, and one of the main you know focuses of frustration for the black officers that were involved in in taking a stand and in 
you know, making their voices heard on these issues is that they felt Congress never really took them seriously. You know, mm-hmm. a, n- a number of them had met with the Sergeant of Arms. They, a number had met with key members of Congress. Uh, they they held demonstrations outside of this building that they were sworn to protect, and so they'd been doing the best they could to draw attention to the racism that they endured day in and day out for many years. And their feeling is that it, it had been ignored, that it was that it was falling on deaf ears. And one of the issues that many of them raised to us in in our interviews was that they felt as though uh, black officers were too often passed over for promotions and and were unable to secure positions in leadership. And so some of the black officers that we talked to drew a a direct line between the lack of officers in leadership and and the response to the protests. You know, their, their feeling was that if there were more black officers at the higher ranks of the Capitol Police Department, that things may have unfolded a little bit differently, that the threat from some of the white supremacist groups uh, who, who, you know, led the assaults on the Capitol uh, may have been taken more seriously had there been more diversity in, the, in those higher ranks. Well, let me also ask our listeners how they're reacting to what they're seeing and what they see as direct lines between what happened on January 6th and racism in the force, lack of promotion as you talk about. Uh, you can join us by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your reactions, your thoughts, your questions to forum at kqed.org. Joaquin Sapien, can you just give us a snapshot of how oversight works for the Capitol Police Force? Because, of course, this is different from the D.C. Police Force. Congress, as you said, is somebody that uh, is an entity that that the officers who are filing the complaints point to as not doing enough. I mean, what kind of oversight is there? So there's a couple of uh, congressional oversight committees that that share the, the duty of sort of regulating uh, that office. And, and that's the, the oversight committee um, as well as the administration committee. And so there have been from time to times, from time to time hearings uh, in which the chiefs of the Capitol Police Department have been brought in to answer questions about security lapses and things of that nature. Uh, and there's also an inspector general uh, within the Capitol Police Department and there is a, a relatively new disciplinary body that had been created um, by Chief Dine in, in 2012. Uh, but like the rest of Congress, the, it's, it's not an entity that is subject to the Freedom of Information Act. And so it's really difficult to huh. actually, as a member of the public, get any real insight into you know, what happens when these security lapses go down. One of the things that we reported on was that a number of Capitol Police officers had left their guns in the bathroom uh, in the years 2015 and 2019. And it's really unclear whether, you know, the, the extent to which those officers were disciplined. Um, it, you know, it looks like there was some discipline. We don't know the extent of it. And, you know, part of the reason for that is because the, the, the disciplinary records just aren't available to the public. And, you know, a lot of police entities, and you may have touched on this, but in terms of civilian oversight bodies, does anything like that exist besides, you know, Congress's oversight? No, it does not. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. There, there are civilian oversight bodies for most 
local law enforcement agencies. Um, here, the you know, in New York, we have the Civilian Complaint Review Board. There's similar entities where members of the public can make complaints about a police department and uh, have them investigated. A lot of those, a lot of the time, those investigations are are unsatisfying for the complainants, but at least they do exist. Uh, there is is nothing of the kind uh, for the Capitol Police Department, but there have been allegations that. Uh, the CPD has been pretty aggressive in enforcing, um, you, know, you know, possession of marijuana laws and, and things like that among uh, people who are just near the Capitol. Uh, there's been a lot of people who are frustrated by, you know, the, the way that they treat the homeless that are in that area. And so there's certainly been um, a number of occasions where people wanted to complain about the CPD uh, that live around the Capitol, but haven't had a, uh, a, a forum to do that. Well, let me go to caller Gwen in San Francisco. Hi, Gwen. Hi, I think that uh, they should have paid attention to the uh, chatter that was going on be- that the FBI and the CIA heard. And I know that those two groups, FBI and CIA group, probably in- infiltrated uh, those groups like they did the Black Panthers during the 60s, the American Nazi Party, and the KKK. So I know those groups have been infiltrated, and they um, they were just willing to take a risk. Also, um, there was a, re- a pandemic played a role in it because, you know, during this time of year, there's lots of schools and tourists going there, and it would have been really a mess if the, the kids and schools and other tourists have gotten met mixed up in that. And my last comment is, I think they're um, playing with danger. They should just have a virtual inauguration. It wouldn't kill anybody. And it would, um, you know, you could have your marching band from Mississippi or Alaska participate and everybody can watch it on TV. I just think that this is too dangerous to have an inauguration right now. Mm. Grim, thanks for sharing those thoughts. Wendy writes, the only people I know in law enforcement are Trump supporters. Even now, I have no idea if they are if they are or could be insurrectionists. But how do we go about purging pro-insurrectionists or suspending them from the forces? I mean, this is a question, uh, Joaquin Sapien, that is really something that, as we heard Missy Ryan describing earlier, local police as well as the military, the Department of Defense is trying to deal with right now. I mean, do you feel like there is attention being paid to that and that there are strategies that that are effective that people are aware of and using? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a question that is going to be coming up a lot for police departments around the country uh, and for federal law enforcement as well. I mean, obviously, people have the right to support whatever political candidate they want in this country. Um, but, you know, taking a being participating in a an, ex, an extremist group that wants to overthrow the government is an entirely separate matter. And we're obviously seeing um, a number of uh, law enforcement agencies that are looking at, you know, people who are in their ranks that potentially broke the law uh, as part of this rally. And, you know, that's a that's a question that uh, ProPublica, the organization I worked for, is interested in pursuing and, and trying to understand more about, you know, what exactly are the, in the, these local patrol guides, 
around uh, whether you're allowed to be a member of these kinds of groups. Uh, so, you know, that's a question that I think the whole country is going to be reckoning with going forward. And again, Joaquin Sapien's piece for ProPublica is titled, No One Took Us Seriously, Black Cops Warned About Racist Capitol Police Officers for Years. I'd like to bring John A. Powell into the conversation, director of UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute and professor of law, African-American and ethnic studies at UC Berkeley. Professor Powell, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me and joining the program. You've been doing racial justice work for decades. I mean, can you talk about, well, first, what was running through your mind as you saw what was happening at the Capitol on January 6th and how you're processing the information that's emerging right now about, you know, the, the role, the complicity potentially of some of the people who were supposed to protect the Capitol? Well, my first reaction was, uh, both sadness and not really shocked in the sense of, uh, unfortunately, I, I'm not surprised that there's violence. I'm more surprised of the response, um, the, that the fact that the, here we have uh, the formal accepting of the Electoral College, certification of the Electoral College, which is an important part of the American democracy, um, and really um, the institutional powers, Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, Vice President Pence. Um, and the response was so incredibly bad. Um, you know, it was just, um, uh, so the attack, you know, the, the severity of it surprised me, but um, the uh, response surprised me even more. Uh, the fact that the America, which is over-militarized uh, with all the guns and all the money we spend on, not just the police, but also the National Guard, uh, Homeland Security, uh, every, and every sector failed. Um, but also I felt like it's potentially a reckoning for America. It's a chance to, uh, so in, in some ways like George Floyd, uh, you know, the black community has known for uh, forever really that, um, being policed in America is a really uh, precarious position. You know, everybody talks about having a conversation with your black child, especially a black male, but even female, about how to deal with the police, something that most white parents don't have to do. Um, uh, but most white Americans didn't believe it. You know, police are fair and people complaining and then George Floyd happened. In some sense, this is our George Floyd moment. Uh, we get to actually shine a spotlight on racism, uh, including white supremacy, including institutional racism, structural racism. And we don't have a real clear vocabulary or, or understanding to actually process it. So easily the, the conversation becomes polarized and people misunderstand, uh, but we can't, ignore the fact that your caller just said, maybe we should call, uh, have a virtual inauguration. I mean, that, that's an amazing thing that the beacon of democracy of the world is saying, we are in a place that maybe we can't have an inauguration because of an insurrection. Yes. Uh, we have failed at having a peaceful transition of power. We have, this is a failure. That has not, that's, we've already breached that. And that really leads into something that I, I really wanted to ask you, Dr. Powell, in terms of 
what shape America's unaddressed racism is taking now? I mean, is there, for example, that we're at this point where we have we can't have a peaceful transfer of power, and it's safer potentially it's safer to have a virtual inauguration, or that we're forced to this place? I mean. Do you see new and concerning things um, as someone who has seen for decades white supremacy's ugly manifestations? Well, certainly. And, and you know, the, it's, we're at an inflection point. What that really means is that, uh, one, there's a lot of unknowns that we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, um, and two, we have some choices. So it's not given. Some people think that it means we're necessarily going to repeat the past. Um, some people think that it's, we're going to have this glorious future. Neither of those things are clear. The choices we make and the actions we take uh, over the next couple of years will decide that. And as bad as this insurrection is, and it's organized around white resentment, white supremacy, anti-Black racism, I mean, the fact that you have police officers being attacked by people, Black police officers being attacked by people who had uh, uh, Blue Lives Matter flags. They were attacking the police while they were saying police lives matter. And what they really were saying is that, except if you're a black police officer, you can't really be a police officer if you're black. But that's the bad news. But the night before, we were, some of us, were celebrating history in the makings in Georgia. We had, I believe, the first Jewish senator from Georgia and certainly the first black senator from Georgia uh, being elected in a runoff that a lot of people thought was impossible in a state that has made history in terms of suppressing black people, suppressing the black vote. It's made history in terms of seeing people being killed all over the country now uh, under the death penalty. Georgia has led that effort to kill people, largely black, but not just black. Um, so we have both of those things happening at the same time. We have the country reaching for a new kind of racial inclusion, a new awareness and possibility in terms of um, um, a multiracial, multiethnic multi country, and a reaction, a backlash saying, no, that will not happen. Um, and the good thing is, in part, is that the person leading that resistance to a really multiracial country, to a, a country as Lincoln described to our better angels, was President Trump. And he's on his way out. And, and Biden has made it clear that he wants to do something different. It doesn't mean the country's gonna stop being divided. It won't. There'll be a lot of work to do. But um, at least there's an intention uh, from the White House to do something different. And now Congress itself has to grapple with the failure to address white racism, the failure to address white supremacy exposes everyone to danger, not just black people, not just immigrants, not just Muslims, but it, our whole democracy is at stake. Uh, and so I'm hoping with that kind of uh, intensity that we will do something different this time, that mm -hmm. it won't be just another Kerner Commission as it was in the 1960s. I'm, I'm hearing the hope, John Powell, and Joaquin Sapien, I'm also remembering in John Powell's description of an insurrectionist wearing a Blue Lives 
you know, matter patch going after black police officers. I'm reminded of a line in your piece where one of the people who filed the complaint also said along the lines, you know, on on inauguration day, while you have the stepped up police force, black officers will be standing next to someone that they don't even know has their back. Yeah, that's that was a haunting line for us, too, when we heard it from Sharon Blackman Malloy, who was the, the lead plaintiff suing the Capitol Police Department over racism that she endured there. And, you know, we're, we're continuing to hear from officers uh, who have those fears and division uh, has not ended. Uh, with the events of January 6th and, you know, people are continue to be concerned and and we're hearing, you know, that there are folks who are, who are working that are paranoid about whether or not, you know, uh, their, their colleagues are going to have their back if something was to happen like this again. Um, And, you know, we're, we're the, the difficult thing, I think for, for the, everyone to reckon with the public to reckon with is that you know this is not a new issue um these allegations were raised in lawsuits going back almost 20 years to 2001 and so uh, a lot of the black officers that we have spoken with or or you know who have filed these suits feel as though they were sort of howling into the wind and that Congress was not taking these allegations seriously. And what's happening now is you have demands for an investigation by members of Congress saying, you know, we need to look at how the Capitol Police Department failed in keeping us safe. And so the big question is, you know, are they going to reckon with this, you know, history of racial allegations that they've been aware of for many, many years? Yes. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with John A. Powell, director of UC Berkeley's Othering and Belonging Institute, professor of law, African-American studies, and ethnic studies at UC Berkeley. Also, Joaquin Sapien, a reporter for ProPublica. His recent story, No One Took Us Seriously, Black Cops Warned About Racist Capitol Police Officers for Years. We're talking about the Capitol Police's troubled history, a force that has the spotlight on it now after what happened on January 6th, how racial discrimination helped, contributed, how, helped contribute to the force's inadequate response to last week's insurrection and the questions it's raising about systemic racism in law enforcement. You, our listeners, are with us. I'll go to your calls in just a second, but to remind listeners, 866-733-6786 is the number. Email address forum at kqed.org, and we're at KQED Forum on Twitter and Facebook. Gail in San Francisco, thanks for calling. Gail, go right ahead. You're on. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Hello. Um You know, I was mentioning earlier to the person who took my call that my parents are Trump supporters and they have given him money. And some months back, they got in the email a uh, 
a fundraising letter, and it was for $35, you could get this Trump um, hat that made you part of the Trump army. And if he needed you, he could call upon you and you could wear this hat and it would distinguish you from other people um, until you knew that you belonged. Because when you were all together, you all had the same hat and um, you could be a member of Trump's army. And, you know, it wasn't really published or covered by the mainstream media. But for me, it was really alarming. Mm. And then I see this and I think, yeah, you know, there's Trump's army, you know, people who gave him money who now belong to his personal uh, mercenary army. John Powell, I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to get John Powell's reaction to what you're saying, Gail. I mean, this militant language, this army associated with being a supporter. Yeah, you know, the, um, thank you for the question. Um, I just want to just remind us what was going on on that day was we had a meeting, a planned meeting, where Trump was asking uh, members of Congress not to certify an election, not to certify electorate. He was going around the country saying the election was illegal. Now think about this. Uh, Trump, after he won in 2016, immediately started talking about voter fraud. He immediately said there were millions of people who were who voted illegal, illegally. And who were those people he was talking about? He, mainly he was talking about black people, Latinos. Uh, and he created a commission which found no fraud. At the same time, over 20 states, Republican-led states, passed new voting laws to make it harder for Black people, Latino, and even poor whites to vote. So this, you know, it's like there's no problem here, but we're going to make it hard for some American citizens to vote. And what Trump was really saying, and the Republican Party was actually enabling, was the saying that some people don't belong. These people are not real Americans. The whole thing in terms of President Obama, of saying the birther, that he's not a real American. Um, and we have to take back our country, take back our country. And so, yes, there's this insidious thing, but it's not just what happened on January 6th. We've been leading up to it. We've been watching it happen. We've been watching members of Congress participate in this. We've been walking, watching governors. Uh, and even after... Everyone's most recently said the election, no widespread fraud. We still have in Georgia and other states, Republican legislators saying we're gonna make it harder for people of color to vote. Uh, and so it's, it makes sense then that Trump's supporters believe that something illegal has happened um, and, and they have to do something about it. Um, and it gets, unfortunately, because it becomes racialized, it becomes uh, a partisan issue, it shouldn't. And the John Lewis um, proposed legislation to fix this, uh, hopefully will pass, but it probably will not, or at least it will be a struggle. Um, so yes, Trump has had a private army, pri and, and people have been willing to let him act outside of the law. We keep saying that, you know, no one's above the law. Well, Trump is. Uh, he's acted consistently illegally. Uh, Congress, again, Republicans have protected him. Um, 
And then the last thing I'll say on this is, the, is that I'm African-American and to just legions of stories, Joaquin's story about the police having uh, racists in the police department, it's like, really? That's what Black Lives Matter was about. That's what the, that's what the march over the summer in, in response to the killing of, of George Floyd was about, was that there's racists in the police department. And are we surprised that it's true of the Capitol Police as well? Are we surprised, it would be, I would be surprised if it wasn't there. And the real question is, what do we do to get beyond it? Yes, a listener's asking a similar question. Purging the military and law enforcement of pro-insurrectionists is a first step, the listener writes, but how do we stop their racism, violence, and uprisings? These groups have military-grade firepower due to America's warped obsession with firearms. Len writes, what would it take to put the D.C. National Guard under the control of the D.C. mayor? It seems to me that this would be a no-brainer. Surely it doesn't take full statehood, does it? Joaquin, I don't know if you have an answer to, to Len's question. It's a good question. Um, I, I don't think that that's the way that it works, but but I don't know. Um, we, we, we should look into it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, what the mayor's been advocating for with respect to that. Butcher writes, can you name the white supremacist groups you're talking about? For example, was the KKK present? Can you discuss what's required in order to be designated a white supremacist group? I don't know if you have that answer, Joaquin, as, as you do more research. I know you're looking at the Capitol Police Force, but also just the groups that they're affiliated with, the officers who are pro-insurrectionist are affiliated with. The Capitol Police officers that are affiliated, we, we haven't been able to figure that out yet either. I mean, one of the, the next step for our reporting among the many unanswered questions is, you know, how how high do the sympathizers uh, with this movement rank within the Capitol Police Department, and and do they themselves belong to any of these groups? Uh, you know, th this morning there was charging documents released uh, against a couple of the rioters who who said that they were, you know, greeted with a handshake and a hug by one of the Capitol Police officers. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of questions swirling around, you know, the extent of their involvement with some of these groups. So it's a good question. And, and you know, our, our reporting is heading in that direction and hopefully we'll have some answers on that soon. Caller birth, oh, sorry, go ahead, John Powell. On the earlier question, uh, I think it's pretty clear that the law and the constitution, uh, DC is a federal, uh, territory, if you will, it's not a state, as you know, and it's under the, the, the control of Congress. Uh, so if Congress wanted to delegate, that may be possible, but there's no right for the mayor to actually co control um, Capitol Police. Let me go to caller Bertha in Pengrove. Hi, Bertha. Hi, thanks for taking my call. And some of my points have been made by other speakers, but I just wanted to hope that the discussion that's been raised from the Capitol insurrection isn't limited to the Capitol Police. And we realize that um, police have been aligned with right-wing um, ideology since labor protests in the 30s and the turning the other way in bombings and KKK activity in the South in the 1960s and the Bundy's uh, occupation of land in Oregon recently. And um, so I'm, I'm hoping this discussion goes and remains wider. Secondly, I wanted to point out police, the role of police unions having grown from uh, just concerns with pay and working conditions, where they're actually working 
as lobbyists and working with lawmakers and attending legislative sessions to lobby against civilian oversight and against restrictions on such things as um, hiring officers in departments that have a history of Mm. of violence or behavioral problems. And lastly, all the way to the top of the um, Department of Homeland Security, which is hugely funded and seems focused on the Middle East and Mexico. And even with the wake-up call of the Oklahoma City bombings, we seem to spend very little national attention, national security attention on right-wing nationalism in our country. And that's all I have to say. Thanks so much. Bertha, thanks. Uh, Joaquin Sapien, she is reminding me of another comment we've gotten from another listener, Carolina, who writes, I think it is also worth mentioning how police unions perpetuate white supremacy. We need to hold our city councils accountable for giving these unions so much power to shield racist officers from any repercussions, even when they commit hate crimes. Is that relevant to Capitol Police? Uh, They do have a pretty powerful union uh, that they're a part of. And some of the officers that we've talked to said that they've raised the issues of racism with those union leaders as well. And so that's another thing that we'd like to try to dig into and, and understand more, you know, how, how the union has responded to these allegations over racism um, for, for going back years. Um, you know, the, the callers are, are uh, totally spot on and with, with respect to how strong police unions have become in recent years. You know, here in New York, where, where I live, there's been a tremendous battle over the, the powers of the Civilian Complaint Review Board and its ability to, to get uh, documents from uh, the police department and their ability to, to levy meaningful discipline against officers who have been found to violate the patrol guide. You know, the, the unions become very much involved in that. And, uh, you know, there's, there, there's a tremendous fight going on right now in New York City about the public's access to, to those documents. And, you, know, you know, yeah. Well, Joaquin Sapien, just really quickly, I mean, as you've reported, you know, a handful of Capitol Police officers being suspended, at least a dozen are under investigation for possible complicity. And as you've also noted, you know, we saw Capitol Police officers fighting valiantly, you know, trying to fight off these insurrectionists as well. But it sounds like, based on where your reporting is leading you, that you feel like the extent to which this has infiltrated the Capitol Police may be far greater than what at least these initial suspensions and investigations are showing. Well, we're certainly interested in trying to figure out the degree to which, you know, these extremists have have infiltrated not just the Capitol Police Department, but other federal and local law enforcement agencies. Um, You know, from from what what we saw on television, there was obviously a, you know, pretty wide sort of disparity in the way that some of these officers responded. Some of them were quite aggressive in trying to fight off protesters. Others seem to be, you know, greeting them with open arms. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions asked by Congress, asked by the media, asked by others about, you know, who is really calling the shots here? Were there sympathizers in uh, the CPD leadership and, and how high were they in terms of ranking uh, within this organization? So those are all questions that we're eager to, to pursue. And we're talking about racism and extremism in law enforcement. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
And of course, John Powell, you are saying that, you know, this is of no surprise. And this is exactly what Black Lives Matter protesters were protesting, the racist killings of black women and men by cops. And so I just have to ask you, what, what how do you react to to people drawing equivalencies between the summer protests and white supremacists and neo-Nazis storming a Capitol, trying to execute the vice president, take lawmakers hostage, and, and but essentially disrupt, just disrupt a constitutionally protected transfer of presidential power. Well, there's really is no real comparison. I mean, uh, and I'm sure you heard that, I think it was the uh, president of the Seattle Polish Union uh, made the argument that the disruption and, and insurrection was actually in on January 6th was being uh, perpetrated by Black Lives Matters and Antifa. Right. And it just reminded me, I just, uh, you know, uh, we're watching it on television, we're seeing all the people prosecuted, and it's just a refusal to actually acknowledge what's going on. Uh, there's one report showing that um, the police, when they're policing a, a demonstration uh, for racial justice, is three times more likely to be violent than when they're uh, policing a demonstration uh, that's primarily white. Um, and so the disparity is across the country. Um, and one of the callers talked about the history of policing. In the South in particular, policing came out of citizens patrol. So it's, it's much older. It was actually, uh, citizens were essentially drafted to keep this, to hunt down uh, people who have been enslaved, who escaped and keep them in line. So it has this long history. Now it's a, it's a checkered history because some places have done better. Um, but yeah, I think that it, it would be a mistake to just look at the individual police. This is a, a systemic problem. There's something fundamentally wrong with the way we do policing in the country. Um, uh, after uh, Trayvon Martin was killed, one of the things that struck me is that he's walking down the street, it's getting to be dark, a car is following him. Who does he call? He calls his girlfriend. Um, and Mark Zimmerman in a car, he sees someone's in the neighborhood that he doesn't know. Uh, he's suspicious of him, partially because he's black and wearing a hoodie. Who does he call? He calls the police and has a friendly chat with them. Um, I asked my students, uh, how many of you would call the police if you saw something like this happening to you? Not one black student said they would call the police. Uh, and we just saw uh, a situation where a family called the police. So actually they called services for another family member who was having a psychological episode, but wasn't dangerous, wasn't threatening people. And the police came and killed him, uh, a black man. And this just happened. I mean, so there's always been this uh, different experience uh, between uh, policing in the white community uh, and policing in the black community. Uh, Richard Pryor uh, made a comedy skit about it, but it's not funny. Uh, so yeah, part of it is uh, for it's important for white America to really experience and understand the police are doing something different in the black community. And historically, they were doing it at least in the name of protecting the white community. Everybody wants to be safe, not just white people, not just police, but black people too, people in Congress. Uh, and the police have not consistently seen his role as protecting people of color, particularly Blacks, we're seen as a threat. Um, and too often when a Black person is killed, uh, we'll say the police had fear for his life. Well, that can't be the standard. 
because white America has been afraid of black people, even though white America has been killing black people and Native American people. And California recently changed the standard. I, I want you to put your law professor hat on just for these last 30 seconds. Richard writes, Capitol rioters will likely use the legal defense that they were invited to D.C. and given permission to attack by the president. Will this defense work? John Powell. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, you can... It, <laughs> Saying, right. Well, first of all, I mean, everything, everything is complicated, right? I mean, Trump basically said not only does he have his army, he has his court, he has his, his judges. Uh, and so things are, are not cut and dry. Um, and so people who will be adjudicating these things will also have these biases. But as a, a legal matter, no, you should not, you, you can't commit a crime uh, and then say, well, the president asked me to do it. Uh, now, he may also give you a pardon or something thereof, uh, but no, you, that's not that's not a, uh, right. a credible defense. What illuminates that question is just the fact <clears throat> that it shows how how deeply and structurally this goes, which of course is what you have been also trying to make us all aware of for so many years, John Powell. So thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. And also thank you to Joaquin Sapien, a, rep a reporter for ProPublica, for his piece digging into racism in the Capitol Police Force. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Susan Britton, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres. Thank you to our listeners for their questions, comments. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How?! You'll left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.